you are confident, for whatever reason, you are confident that the Lord has been speaking to you. You, you maybe you've been sitting in the sermons, and every week the Lord is just bringing something to your heart and showing you something that needs to change in your life. Or maybe in your own devotional time, you've just been reading the scripture and the scriptures are just jumping out at you and coming alive and, and speaking to the very specific issues in your life. And you know that God is not beating around the bush, that he is trying to get your attention. Or maybe some Christian friends or a wise counselor or somebody has come alongside of you and has challenged you or, or kicked you in the pants and said, hey, I see something in your life that needs to change. Let me help you with that. Whatever the case, in your heart, you just know the Lord is speaking to you. And because you know that God is speaking to you, you go ahead and take a step of faith and you act upon whatever he's speaking to you about. Might be something that needs to start in your life. It might be something that needs to end in your life or whatever. But the Lord is speaking to you and you go ahead and say, all right, I'm gonna get beyond just nodding during the sermon and I'm gonna actually change my behavior. And so you take a step of faith, you trust God and you begin to act upon what he has called you to do. And as you do that, it's exciting because as you get out on that branch and you feel the wind in your face, you're like, wow, this is what living with Jesus is really like. This is exciting. But as time goes by, not everything goes the way you thought it was going to go. And some of the challenges that you are facing, you never saw coming. And if you had known those challenges were involved in disobedience, you wouldn't have said yes in the first place. And you're really beginning to wonder whether you heard God at all. Or maybe you're getting to the point where it's beyond wondering whether you've heard God. You're wondering if there even is a God. You're just frustrated and confused and disillusioned. And you're beginning to question whether there is a God, whether you've heard from God, or maybe even if you did hear from God, Maybe God really can't be trusted. Maybe God doesn't really love you enough to have your back. And these thoughts begin to go through your mind and you begin to wonder. And it makes you nervous. And when that happens, we can envision two basic scenarios. The first is, like I said, maybe God is not real and I'm on my own here. Maybe this is all in my head. And the second is, if God is real, he must be mad at me. He at least has to be disappointed in me because look at me, I'm just stumbling. I, I swore it was going to be different and I'm failing. And you, you begin to doubt and the doubt begins to creep in and that doubt begins to take root in your heart. And you get confused because after all, faith and doubt are polar opposites, right? And faith and doubt can't really coexist, can they? Or so it would seem until you read your Bible and you realize that this book is filled with examples of people whose faith is no stronger than yours. You realize that this book is filled with examples of people who had all kinds of doubt, and yet God still walked with them. 
you realize that this book is filled with people who questioned God, people who disobeyed God, people who turned their backs on God, and yet God never turned his back on them. So the interesting thing is how God responds when we have doubt. How God responds when we're paralyzed by doubt. Now, I want to give some examples of how a truckload of doubt and a mustard seed of faith is enough. All from Scripture. First example, Jesus, when he calls his disciples, he has these 12 men that he spends his whole life with. I mean, talk about the investment that he makes. How many times have I thought, oh, I wish I could have been there by those campfires and listened to what Jesus had to talk about. Oh, I wish I could have seen it when he was healing. I wish I could have heard him when he was preaching. Those 12 guys had Jesus' full attention and he invested in those guys. And yet there was one of those guys who had a nickname, Related to what we're talking about. What was his nickname? (laughs) Doubting Thomas, right? How how would you like to be known as Doubting Jordan, (laughs) right? Like, Doubting Thomas. That's what we've known him uh, as ever since, right? Why? Because uh, when Jesus raised from the dead, Thomas didn't know about it. He wasn't there. When the other disciples met the risen Jesus, they told him about it, and he said, I don't think so. People don't raise from the dead. And they said, no, he really did. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll believe it when I could put my fingers in his wounds. And the next thing you know, Jesus shows up, and he says, hey, Thomas, I heard you were doubting. And he kills him. Some of you are like, seriously, why are those people laughing? No, he didn't kill them. He looks at him, he goes, I heard you were doubting. Here, put your finger in my wounds. And he ate lunch with him. And he encouraged him in his faith. And he built up strength in him so that he could move forward from that point on. Or think about Mark chapter 9, there's a story of this father who has a son who's possessed by a demon. And he brings his son to the disciples and the disciples can't seem to cast the demon out. And Jesus comes down off the hill and he says, what's going on? And the guy says, my son is possessed by a demon and the demon throws him into the fire and he throws him into the water and he goes into these convulsions and the demon is trying to kill my son. And I went to your disciples and they couldn't even cast him out. If there's anything you can do, I would really appreciate it. And there's this pregnant pause and Jesus says, if there's anything I can do, (laughs) all things are possible with God to him who believes. And the man looks at Jesus with everything he cares about on the line and he says, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. And Jesus heals his son. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have faith. It's not that I don't believe. It's just, it's just that I don't understand. It's just that I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. It's just that I, 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 I sometimes doubt. God, help my unbelief. Or this time of year, think about this. There's this teenage girl who is a virgin And an angel appears to her and says, by the way, you're pregnant. 
And she says, I don't think so. I'm a virgin. And he goes on to tell her. And her response, word for word, was, how can this be since I'm a virgin? That's Mary. God says, here's the deal. I sent an angel to talk to you. How much more do you need? She goes, um, this is impossible. How can this be? And the Lord strengthens her faith and uses her to change the world. Last example, it's now past Christmas. Now we're up to Easter. Jesus has risen from the dead, but um, it's Sunday, and most people haven't heard about it yet. There are these two men, followers of Christ. They put all their eggs in the Jesus basket, and they saw him dead. They saw him buried. And then they got out of town because it was dangerous to be there. If you were a known follower of Jesus, they were going to be coming for you next. And they took off and they were headed toward this small town called Emmaus. And as they were walking along the road downcast and downtrodden, this man comes along and joins them on the road and walks with them. And they don't recognize him because the Spirit of God has prevented them from recognizing that he is the risen Jesus. And he says to them, "Uh, so what's going on? And they go, what's going on? Where have you been all weekend? In a cave? (laughs) And Jesus says, no, tell, tell me what happened. And they said, well, this guy, Jesus, they killed him on Friday. And we had hoped that he would be the salvation of Israel. We had hoped. We don't hope anymore. Because now he's dead. And Jesus began to show himself to them in the scriptures and to show that the Messiah had to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And then the Holy Spirit opened their eyes and they saw him for who he was and their faith was encouraged. Guys, I could give you a hundred more examples like this of people who are doubtful, confused, disappointed, disillusioned, hurt, downtrodden, and not what you would call pillars of faith. And God comes along and says, I'm not finished with you yet. There might be a truckload of doubt, but where there's a mustard seed of faith, I can do something. Think about the disciples. I'm talking Peter, James, John, Andrew, the fishermen. Jesus comes along at the beginning of his ministry. He calls out to them. They're mending their nets and working on their boats. He says, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And as you know, they drop their nets, they leave their boats, they walk away from their businesses and they begin to follow him. You talk about a step of faith. They walk away from everything and they begin to follow him. This is not, I'm nodding in church. This is, I'm changing my life, amen? They're actually doing this, okay? They walk away and they follow him and you go, oh my gosh, what men of great faith. And then you read the rest of the gospel accounts and you see these guys constantly, questioning Jesus, constantly not understanding, constantly afraid, constantly battling for supremacy, not getting at all what he's doing and trying to talk him out of crucifixion. They don't have great faith. And Jesus invests in them anyway. Contrast that with the guy who's known forever as the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He, He is a guy who is seeking God. He cares about 
eternal life and he wants to know how he can have eternal life. And he's heard that Jesus is here and that people say he's the Messiah. And so he goes to Jesus, the Messiah, and he says to him, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he basically says, you know what? You've got to walk away from everything that has defined your life right now up until this point, and you've got to make your life about me. You've got to walk away from everything and follow me, just like those disciples had to walk away from their nets and their boats and their businesses and follow Jesus. That's what this guy has to do. And the scripture sadly says that the man walked away with his face downtrodden because he owned much property. And he chose not to take a step of faith. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew that he had the uh, answers to eternal life. He got all the answers on the quiz right, and he refused to follow him. Or take the Pharisees, for example. They doubted from the beginning. And they should have known. They were the ones who had read all the prophecies. They were the ones who should have understood about the Messiah. But no matter how many signs they saw him perform, all they ever did was ask for more signs. Give us a sign. If you say you're the Messiah, give us a sign. Until finally, Jesus said, I have given you so many signs, and yet you do not believe. In fact, I will not give you any more signs except the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection, three days in and then out. And they never come to follow Jesus. Apparently, there is something about putting your life where your mouth is when it comes to issues of faith. And we're going to learn more about that today in Genesis chapter 15. So if you've got your Bible, now's the time to open to Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. We've been going through chapter at a time in the book of Genesis. And here we find ourselves today in Genesis 15. And we're going to look at the whole chapter today, but I want you to just follow along. I'm going to begin in chapter one, and I'm going to start reading, and, and then I'll, I'll probably stop at some point and say something else, okay? Ready? Here we go. Genesis 15, verse one. After these things, okay, stop there. <laughs> After these things. Now, it's been a week since Genesis 14 for most of us, right? We, you haven't even thought about this since last week, and if you weren't here last week, you don't even know what I'm talking about. After what things? What are the things he's talking about? What he's talking about is that Abraham had to go rescue Lot, right? So he puts together a small army in his household, and he goes after, and he fights a war, and he rescues Lot, which is fascinating and interesting because God had promised Abram that he was going to bless him. He had promised he was going to make him a great nation, and he had promised he was going to give him a great land, and he had promised that he was going to make him a blessing to all of the nations. And so far, Abram walked away from his gods, he walked away from his land, he walked away from his people, and he began with that step of faith, okay, God, I will follow you. And as he followed him, how's it been going for him so far? Well, first of all... Um, he is a vagrant. He doesn't own any land. He had a big ranch back in his home country, but that's gone now. He left that to follow God. And since then, he's been living in a tent. He has no place to call home. He goes, so he finds an open place, they pitch tents, and they sleep there. And he's living as a vagrant. He took a trip to Egypt because there wasn't enough food where he was. He went down to Egypt, got into all kinds of trouble, ends up lying to the Pharaoh, getting in trouble with the Pharaoh, and getting kicked out of Egypt. 
And so he and Lot come back up into uh, the land of Canaan, and he offers Lot to choose which land he will live on, and Lot takes all the good land, and Abram is left without. And then Lot gets, gets taken captive in a war, and Abram has to go and rescue him. And he does all of that, and he wins the battles, and he's going back, and the king of Sodom offers him the spoils of the war, and he says, no, I will not take this blessing from you because I don't want people to say, you blessed me, I want people to know that God blessed me. So he's just walked away from a great, huge fortune, a great blessing. So when it says, after these things, it's talking about those things. After all of this junk has gone on. And now, by the way, because he fought that war, he not only doesn't have a land to call his own, but he's surrounded by enemies. He's made enemies with all of these surrounding city-states. Oh, and I forgot to mention, he's got no children. He's still got no children, and he's a bazillion years old. And his wife is a bazillion years old, and she has been barren since she was a girl. They have no children. You can't have a big family if you have no children. You can't become a great nation if you have no children. And they have no children, and the time for them to have children has long since passed. And he's trying to walk by faith. He's trying to believe God. And he had to begin to wonder if God had made a mistake. Or maybe he hadn't heard from God. Or maybe he misunderstood. Or maybe God doesn't really love him that much. Or maybe God can't be trusted. Or maybe there is no God. That's where we find Abram. When it says, after these things, that's what it means. Oh, let's continue. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So he's already made him this promise in chapter 12, and now he's reminding him of the promise, right? Look at Abram's response, verse two. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, one of my servants had a firstborn son in my house, and the law requires that he will be my heir. You keep talking about how I'm going to be a great nation. Have you noticed, God? I have no children, and I'm old, and there's no way for me to have children. Verse 3, or that's verse 3, verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to them, so shall your descendants be. So chapter 12, he gives them a promise. None of it seems to be working out. At the beginning of chapter 15, uh, he reiterates the promise. Abram, frankly, doubts it. He questions it. And now God reiterates it again. He says, go out, look at the stars. If you could count them, that's how many your, your descendants are going to be. I'm going to make you a great nation. And by the way, it's going to be someone who comes from your body. This is going to be a natural birth between you and your wife. Trust me on this. This had to sound very much like what it sounded like to Mary when she came and the, and the angel came to her and said, hey, you're going to have a child. 
It's like, well, I went to biology class in seventh grade. I'm pretty sure I understand this. He'd been to biology class. This ain't happening. But God says it is. And then watch what happens. So God, God has now reiterated three different times already this promise. Now, now watch what happens. Verse 6. This is the key verse in all of Genesis. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That turns out to be one of the most gigantic principles in all of Scripture. Right there, chapter 15, verse 6. So highlight it, circle it, put a star by it, fold the page, put a bookmark. Don't miss that, okay? Verse 6 is a huge principle. He believed God and God reckoned it to him. That is, God added to his account righteousness, God said he was righteous. Now, we've been watching his life. He's not so impressive. He lies. He manipulates. He has trust issues. And God says he's righteous. It's almost as if somehow his righteousness was not dependent upon his works, but it was dependent upon God's declaration. He believed God, and God credited it to his account that he was righteous. Now, we'll come back to that. It's a huge principle. But, but look at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? I'm trying here, God. I... <laughs> This is hard for me. How am I supposed to believe this? How can I know? Is there some guarantee? Is there some contract we could sign? Is there some way that you could assure me that this is going to happen? Now, if that was you and I today and we were conducting business and we needed to make it legal, we would sign a contract and it would be binding. In those days, they didn't sign contracts. In the ancient Near East, what they did when they wanted to enter into a covenant, was they would have a ceremony, a covenant ceremony. And what they would do would be they would sacrifice animals, and then they would cut the sacrificed animal in half. They would take half the body and put it over here, and half the body and put it over there, and they would do that with several animals and make sort of a walkway between the sacrificed meat. And then the two men that were entering into the covenant would walk the, the pathway between the sacrifices. And, and the um, idea was that if one of us breaks this covenant, may we become like these animals. That was how they entered into contracts. So um, we're going to see that begin to unfold here because he's asking for a contract. Verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and young pigeons. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite of each other. He did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. This is a formal binding contract, okay? It's all about belief. Remember, verse 6, Abram believed God 
and God counted it as righteousness. It all comes down to belief. This contract, this covenant that we enter into with God, it all comes down to his faithfulness and our faith, okay? Now, when we use the word believe, that word gets thrown around and it has different definitions to different people. So let's be clear about what it means to believe. For example, if you read a book about aerodynamics and you come to understand how airplanes stay in the sky and you become an expert in airplanes and how airplanes work and why they're able to stay in the sky and why they're safe and you know all the statistics about how rarely they crash and all of that and you're an expert on airplanes and you tell me, I believe that that airplane can fly and hold me and keep me safe from Los Angeles to New York. That is not what the Bible means by believe. The Bible means I'm on the plane. It is one thing to say, I think this airplane will work. It's another thing to take your seat in coach, right? I'm dependent upon this. I've acted upon my belief. And biblically, this concept of belief doesn't have any credence until it's acted upon. So it's one thing to say I know something is true. It's another thing to actually act upon it. So God is, invite, God is acting upon this covenant. And he's inviting Abram to be a part of it. Now, verse 12 Oh, before we get to verse 12, let me tell you one more thing about the covenant. Both parties pass through because they're both accountable. What you're about to notice is that the covenant that's about to take place, only one party passes through. And we'll talk about that. Uh, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, <clears throat> where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. He's talking about the coming slavery in Egypt. Now, Abram is asleep. This is happening in a dream. This is happening in a vision. God is speaking to him. Verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Does this sound familiar to Abram? He just went down into Egypt, got in all kinds of trouble, and left with many possessions. That was a type of what was about to happen, which was a type of what was going to happen with our slavery to sin and Christ setting us free. Continuing, verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land, even from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All of them are in the land now, but this is going to be your land, Abram. And, and don't miss, there's this torch, this flame, this, this oven and smoking pot thing that passes. This is representative of God. We'll see the same representation of God uh, in the wilderness as he appears as a pillar of fire before them and goes before them in the wilderness. And this representation of God passes through the cut pieces of animal and Abram does not pass through. 
This is so important. We just took the Lord's Supper, this new covenant, a new covenant in Christ's blood that is not about our works, but about his grace, right? We are the beneficiaries of the covenant, but he is the one who holds the covenant. Isn't that good news? Because guess what? I have already messed up a time or two. I have already given God reason to say, sorry, you're going to become like one of these, right? But it's not up to me to keep the covenant. It's up to God. He who is faithful, he who cannot deny himself, he who cannot be unfaithful, he's the one that holds the covenant together. This is a picture of that covenant. God passes through. Abram does not. It was never about Abram's character. It was never about Abram's performance. It was, it was not going to be about Abram's successful behavior. It was always about God's grace and God's ability to keep up his end of the bargain. Abram was going to fail many more times, but God called him righteous anyway in verse 6. Why? On the basis of faith. On the basis of faith. Faith is a gift from God. I don't know how you think of faith or what you've been taught about faith, but let me tell you something. You cannot just muster out of your own free will more faith. You can't create faith. You can't buy faith. You can't construct faith. You can't try really hard to get more faith. The only way to have biblical faith is if God gives it to you as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you have been saved by faith, and that, the faith, not of itself, but it's a free gift of God, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. It depends on him. And faith is not about perfect behavior. It's about trusting God enough to walk with him. Faith is about living our lives as though we actually believe that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do. The whole reason Abram was on this journey in the first, part, in the first place is because he believed God. The whole thing, this whole story of Abram is a walk of faith. That's all it is. Imperfect faith, faith yes. Immature faith, of course, but faith nonetheless. And Abram experienced God in ways that he did because he trusted God enough to actually follow him. Let that sink in. Abram experienced God the way he did because he was actually willing to trust God enough to follow him. And if your experience with faith has not been an experience with God, ask yourself why. He actually trusted him enough to actually follow him. Just like the disciples actually left their nets and boats. Just like Abram actually left Ur of the Chaldeans and left Haran and followed God. He trusted him enough to follow him. Most of what passes for faith today is not biblical faith. We get all kinds of confusion about what faith is. Uh, first, first kind of counterfeit faith I can think of is, is what I was saying earlier. This sort of intellectual agreement about something. Two plus two is four. That's not faith. That's a fact, but it's not faith. 
I, let me, I, I was in a bookstore. I love bookstores. I wish, I mean, almost all the bookstores are gone. I love just spending an afternoon in a bookstore. That's probably my favorite thing. I, I'll, I'll just, um, people go, are you insane? What could be more boring? I love books. I just pull them off the shelves. And I was just walking through the bookstore and I was looking at like the health section and I pulled this book off and it was about how to have great physical fitness through proper exercise and diet. And I said, I should probably get this. <laughs> I, I bought that book and I mean, I read that thing cover to cover and it was good. Highlighter in hand, took notes, memorized sections of it all about how to be physically fit through exercise and diet. How do you think that's working for me? <laughs> See, we call that faith. I believe what's in that book is true. I believe if I cut down on the bacon cheeseburgers and mix in a salad now and then, it would help. I believe that if I would just exercise every day and if I would just eat a balanced diet, I believe I would be in much better shape. I just can't sort of get my brain to convince my mouth. And so whatever that is, that knowledge, it ain't faith. And a lot of us are, are doing our Christianity that way. We can quote chapter and verse. We believe this stuff. We think it's true. We could pass all the tests. Who is Jesus? What is the Trinity? How does somebody get to heaven? We, we have our gospel straight. What we don't have straight is our lives. We're not following Jesus. And we're wondering, well, if I have all this faith, why isn't it working? It, it, we won't turn there, but in James chapter 2, verse 19, there's this amazing passage. James is talking about the relationship between faith and works, and, and here's what he said. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well, for even the demons believe and shudder. Do you think Satan believes in God? <laughs> do you think Satan can explain the doctrine of the Trinity? Do you think Satan knows the Bible backward and forward? He does. But do you think he's going to be in heaven? No. There is a difference between knowing what's true and true saving faith. And a big part of it is this step that it takes to actually follow him. Abram's faith radically impacted his day-to-day -day life. He was not living the way he used to live. And if you've been led to believe that real salvation is just about agreeing with the facts about Jesus, then I am sorry to tell you, you have been misled. It's a counterfeit faith. Another counterfeit faith is the misconception that says that faith is about taking a crazy risk and believing that God has to bail me out. And I call that faith. Especially if I believe really hard and especially if I give some extra money to the church to prove how much faith I have. Then, certainly, if I positively confess and don't allow any questions to enter into my mind, then certainly God's going to give me what it is that I'm going after. And so people do crazy stuff all the time. Listen, you can go to the edge of a cliff, look down a thousand feet, and say, I believe that God has the power to help me fly. And then if you jump you will discover how much power God has because he invented gravity, right? 
you don't get to do whatever crazy thing you want to do and say, God led me to this. And then hold God accountable as if somehow he's got to deliver. That's not real faith. God is not impressed when we take risk for the sake of taking risks. He is impressed when we do what he has told us to do. So listen, guys, this is not hard. We don't have to go, oh, I need to hear from the voice of God and then I'll know what to do. Guys, listen, this book is filled with what God wants us to do. You want to walk by faith? Try this, husbands. Love your wife as Christ loves the church because that's what the Bible commands you to do. That's a walk of faith. You want to walk by faith? How about this? Start living a transformed life and then share the gospel with people who ask you about it. The Bible commands us to do that. You want to walk by faith? Start surrendering everything you have to God and letting him take and use anything he wants in your life any way that he wants to take and use it. That's walking by faith. Check this out. You want to walk by faith? Try this. Pray for people. Don't talk about praying for people. Like, I don't don't know where that hits you, but I think I wrote that right out of my own conviction this week. It is easy to look at the prayer sheet that comes out every Sunday from those Connect cards. And I open my email and read that thing and catch up on all the gossip of what's going on in everybody's life, close my email and go about my day. It is easy to say, listen, as you've been sharing this problem with me, I'm gonna pray for you. And then walk away and never pray for those people. You know what the scripture commands us to do? Pray for one another. So you wanna walk by faith? Maybe it's not so esoteric. Maybe it's not so out there. Maybe it's practical. Maybe it's feeding the hungry. Maybe it's visiting the shut-in. Maybe it's caring for the sick. Maybe it's loving your neighbor. That's a walk of faith. Don't tell me how much faith you have because you mortgaged your house in order to start some business. In most cases, that's not faith, it's recklessness. Let's start where the scripture starts. Third kind of counterfeit faith is thinking that faith is about looking on the bright side. Faith is optimism. The glass is half full. It's gonna be okay. I don't worry about it. I know I don't have any money to pay my bills, but that's okay. God will find a way. La, 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 la. That is not biblical faith. Some of us think that real faith involves being so optimistic that we have no doubt. Listen, doubt is not the opposite of Christian faith. Doubt is what makes the Christian life such an adventure. It's what makes walking by faith exciting. Abram's question was a fair one. How is this gonna happen? I'm old. My wife is old. We're barren. We don't have any children. How could this possibly happen? That doesn't show a lack of faith. That shows a lack of understanding. And God gets it. We don't understand. In Acts chapter 12 Again, we won't turn there. There's this, there's this story that unfolds in Acts 12. The church is beginning to get persecuted. Stephen has now been stoned and there's a persecution in Jerusalem and they're starting to arrest the apostles and they've arrested James and Peter. And you know what they did? They took James out back and they chopped off his head. 
a disciple of Jesus Christ, a man of faith. And they scheduled Peter's execution for the morning. And he was being kept in jail. And so the church gathered in a home and they began to pray for the release of Peter, for, for safety for Peter. They began to cry out to God and ask him to please release Peter from this prison. While they're praying and unbeknownst to them, God sends an angel to the prison, opens the prison doors and leads Peter right out through the gate. And so what does Peter do? He goes to the prayer meeting. He shows up at the prayer meeting. He knocks on the door. The girl comes and answers the door and sees Peter. And she slams the door and goes back to the group and goes, you're not going to believe this. Peter's here. And to a man, they said this, it can't be Peter. It must be his ghost. In other words, if you're seeing someone that looks like Peter, Peter must already be dead. Now, they're in a prayer meeting praying for Peter's release. Eventually, Peter walks in and they're like, and everybody freaks out, right? Here's what I want us to see from that story. They didn't, Peter didn't get released because their prayer was without doubt. Their prayer was filled with doubt. And God did what God was going to do anyway. Because listen, if you believe in a God who requires you to have extreme faith before he can do anything, you don't believe in the God of the Bible. The God you believe in, you you believe in yourself, your ability to convince God. You believe, you have faith not in God, you have faith in faith. Our God is not shackled by our doubts. It's a false teaching. I know it says, you know, if, if you believe you have received it, you will receive it. And we think, oh my gosh, I just can't let any doubt in my life. We got to remember believing is following God and doing what he's called us to do. God has called us to walk with him. So they had significant doubt and Peter got released anyway. Don't forget Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our God is mighty. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is awesome. Our God is large and in charge. And if we think that he's reliant upon us to just muster enough faith so he could actually do something, where were we when he spoke the universe into existence? Guys, don't believe that God is dependent upon you for anything. He invites us to pray so that we can experience his power, but not so we can give him power. Friends, mustard seed faith that results in obedience is the kind of faith that outweighs truckloads of doubt. Abram's life is marked as much by doubt as it is by faith. He doubts that God could keep him safe if, if people knew that Sarai was his wife. He questions God and asks for explanations all along the way. He takes matters into his own hands when he can't figure out where I'm going to get a child. And he sleeps with a servant girl to try to get a child that way. Uh, and the list goes on and on. And that guy is known as the father of the faithful Not because his faith was without doubt, not because he understood everything, not because he did everything right, but because through it all, he walked with God. He walked with God. 
He took God at his word. He lived his life as if God actually is who he says he is. And he'll actually do what he says he'll do. So I want you to think about your own faith as we close. Is your doubt so strong that you've written God off and you're living as if he doesn't exist? Not that you can't get the questions right, but you're actually living as if he doesn't exist. For instance, the scripture says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. I know if you've heard that verse, maybe you probably believe it. But do you live like that's true? Or are you just riddled with anxiety every time there's a bill coming and you're not sure how it's going to get paid? Think about, will you trust him enough to obey him? If your doubt is so strong, can you believe God anyway? And if you can't, then let me ask you this. Who is your God really? Is he the God of the Bible? Or is he some idea you made up in your head? Is your doubt so strong that you bow to fear rather than walking ahead as he leads you through the valley of the shadow of death? <laughs> I, was, I wanted an illustration for this. And, and I, I, you know, David writes about this. He goes, he goes, God leads me as my good shepherd that he leads me to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Right? And I was thinking, man, what's that like as God leads David through the valley of the shadow of death, the dark place, a scary place, a place that you don't know how you're going to get out of. That's the valley of the shadow of death. And David says, he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. A couple things to remember there. Number one, he doesn't leave us, lead us into the valley of the shadow of death and desert us there. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen? You're not going to stay there. Okay, number two, why isn't David afraid in Psalm 23? For thou art with me. I'm holding my daddy's hand. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death and I'm holding my daddy's hand and he's got me. And I wanted an illustration of this and I thought, well, I want to find a video of a terrified little kid on a, on a roller coaster, a thrill ride next to his dad, holding his dad's hand, right? And, and dad makes it okay. And so I went on YouTube and I started looking for this kind of thing. And what I found was those, um, those slingshot rides at the fair, you know, where they shoot you way up into the sky. They have cameras on that to videotape everybody's face and then they put it on the internet. Isn't that great? So, um, so there's all these ones with dads and little kids and I'm like, I'm gonna show them this. And the little kid holding the dad's hand and, and give them this example. But I couldn't do it because everyone I found, it was the dad who was screaming like a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's what I can tell you. Your heavenly father is not like the dads you know. <laughs> Guys, even when you can't hold his hand, he'll hold yours. You may find yourself in the valley of the shadow of death and there might be doubt and there might be foreboding, but you're with God. And if you will continue to walk with him, I promise you, you are not staying in the valley of the shadow of death. You're walking through. He's our good shepherd. That's how he leads us. So how's your journey going? How's your journey of faith working out? Because listen, it's one thing to take the Lord's Supper. 
it's another thing to take the Lord's hand. And he's called us to both. The journey of a thousand miles, the philosopher once said, begins with one step. Isn't it time to stop being ruled by fear? Not to think that you have to have an absence of fear. Isn't it time to stop being ruled by doubt? Even though the doubt might be there mixed in with your faith? Isn't it time to stop living a life that is characterized by whatever makes you feel comfortable and safe and takes a step of faith with God today? Because until you take that step of faith, you're never going to know what it is to be held by God. Abram did, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we want to thank you that you are who you are. You're not a figment of our imagination. You're, you're not some uh, weak little God in the midst of other gods who's competing for primacy. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the creator God who spoke the universe into existence, who designed our lives with a purpose, and you know what you're doing Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you care enough about us that in the midst of our wobbly faith, you still come along beside us. That in the midst of our fear and doubt, you still hold our hands and you will not leave us in the valley, but you carry us through. Father, help us to be people who cling to you and say yes to the invitation to walk with you. Father, we may stumble along the way, but we're trusting that you will make us whole and that you will reckon our faith as righteousness. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.